I'm Kim Carson. And I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. A bonus episode. Bonus, baby! Uh, we come to you from Okinsis, and we acknowledge that we get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutsina, the Yahe Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation, Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Our sources for this episode come to you from Crimes of the Century, a documentary on Prime, a documentary series on Prime, History.com, and the documentary Ruby Ridge, The American Experience from PBS. Ooh, yeah, we watched a couple docs this uh, this week. Yeah, and... not the most uplifting. Oh my god, Yeah, such um, a bummer. So the reason for this bonus episode that you are listening to right now is our main subject this week is the Oklahoma City bombing in, uh, you may have guessed, Oklahoma City. Arkansas. Oh, no. Close. Um, (laughs) But the backstory for that requires a little bit more of a deep dive into a couple of other things. So we thought today on this bonus episode, we would give you the background information that kind of inspired some of the events of the Oklahoma City bombing. Before we get into it, I would like to say thank you. I always want to start with a thank you. We really appreciate you downloading our show, uh, rating, reviewing, subscribing, all that good stuff. Absolutely love it. Um, this has been very fun to learn. It's fun to learn is what I'm saying. And without, um, I don't know, you guys downloading this, I probably would just go and play Animal Crossing or watch TikToks instead. So, so you'd be happy thank you. is what you're saying. I'd be, yeah, well, I would know a lot less, uh, about the Turner Diaries than I do, which is horrific. Yes. Really bad. Really, really bad. Yeah. Not a thing you want to know about, but... Here we go. <sighs> so yes, thank you. Uh, but no, seriously, it's it's been nice to see all of the the positive messages that we've been getting. If you want to send us more of those, you yeah. can email the show at we had no idea podcast at gmail.com or we are on Instagram at we had no idea. Do it for the podcast. Gram. Yes. So without any further ado, let's ruin your day by talking about a couple <laughs> of things that inspired Oklahoma City bomber, spoiler alert, Timothy McVeigh. And we start with Ruby Ridge, which comes to you from northern Idaho, disturbingly close to the Canadian border. 50 kilometers, I think they said. I believe that's what they said. Um, it is an area that is very... Remote? Yes, that is the exact word I was looking for. And it is because of that remoteness that it became a popular spot for white extremist groups in the 1980s. One of those being the Aryan Nations. They had established Hayden Lank as a sanctuary. Their leader, Richard Butler, was of the belief that the federal government was in the hands of Jewish people and they had to establish Christian sovereignty. His goal was to make America white and Christian and said there would be a lot of bloodshed because of this. Robert Matthews thought, hey, all we're doing is talking about bloodshed and overrunning a government. Not nearly enough action going on here. So he wanted to start a revolution. He had 12 followers that he met through the Aryan Nation and was inspired by the Turner Diaries. Uh, I did look up Turner Diaries on 
Wikipedia, so I, I guess technically we should cite that for a source during this show. Ah, yes, okay. For the first time. Yes. Fun. Anyways, <laughs> um, I didn't want to get too into this book, so uh, Wikipedia was my light skimming of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you buy this book now, you're ending up on some kind of list. Oh, even, even Googling it, I was like, I'm pinging on somebody's laptop in some bureau somewhere. Yeah. Ooh. So he names his group The Order after a group that was in the Turner Diaries, and they start a string of armed robberies along with a May 1984 murder and a bombing. Uh, they bomb a synagogue. Uh, they put a hit squad together to assassinate Alan Berg, who was a um, well-known Jewish radio host. Um, he was shot to death in the driveway of his home. The group tried to rob a Brinks truck on, like, it just in broad daylight. They were like, we need some money. While loading up the money... This leader guy, Matthews, leaves his gun behind some way, somehow, and they use that to track him to their hideout. So the feds have an address now. They go to Matthews' house or compound, um, and he wouldn't surrender, so a gunfight breaks out. It goes through the night. So during the night, they send some illuminated rounds in, and those catch fire. So this house that is stacked with firearms uh, catches fire, uh, and it explodes everything. So in the morning... uh, when the fire cools off, I guess. It's like a, so to speak. And literally, they go in and they find his burned remains. Matthew's group catches the eye of the FBI. <laughs> of the FBI. Sorry. And this brought out a real push against white supremacist groups. It is at this time that Randy Weaver and his family move to Idaho from Iowa. They move to a place called Ruby Ridge. Uh, it is a basically a cabin. They have no electricity, no running water. They are self-sustaining. They are trying to separate themselves from a dangerous world. They believe that they are living in the end times. Now, there is a bit of a chicken and the egg debate, I guess, that goes along with this. It is not necessarily clear if this is a white separatist who just happened to, or who moved close to the Aryan nations, or if this is just a guy who moved close to the Aryan nations and became a white extremist. Either way, he ends up at the Aryan nations quite a bit Mm -hmm. um, with some of the social gatherings that they are putting on. Unfortunately for him, and I suppose everyone else at the Aryan Nations as well. <laughs> and just everyone else in general, because right. the Aryan Nation exists. Yes. Um, <laughs> the federal government is, as we mentioned, very much focused on this. Weaver is spotted by an informant. That informant gets him to saw off shotguns to the point of them being illegal. They arrest Weaver and hope that he will become an informant. The issue they did not consider at this time is that Randy Weaver is not one who trusts the government even a little bit. Uh, so he very politely told them where to stick those sawed-off shotguns and does not show up for a court appearance, which is frowned upon by the United States of America. And also gets a warrant out for your arrest. Yes, yes, yeah. And they become rather aggressive in their attempts to bring Randy Weaver in. Yeah, so the U.S. Marshal Service takes over the case and they scout his property. They had the Weaver compound under surveillance and noticed that anyone walking around was always armed. Uh, There is 
I believe. So there's Randy Weaver, his wife, his son. He has a daughter and then they have a baby. They they have two daughters, but one is quite young. Yes. Right. Okay. So, I mean, probably except for the infant, they are always armed. Mm-hmm. There is also a, a, a friend at, the, at their place living with them as well. So in August of 1992, the U.S. Marshals send in six different squads to the Weaver compound to get a lay of the land, figure out the best way to try to come and get this guy to go to jail. The Weaver's dog, though, catches a scent of the U.S. Marshals and takes off, and a shootout breaks out once the dog discovers the Marshal. Uh, Who shot who first is up for debate, but by the end of the shootout, Randy Weaver's 14-year-old son, Sam, has been killed, along with a U.S. Federal Marshal and a dog. This now turns the entire case into uh, an FBI case. They bring in their hostage recovery team, and this is something that is discussed now as a training example of what not to do. They were instructed to treat this like a warlike situation. There are a lot of times where the FBI goes into this, and the first option given is the option of surrender. The FBI feels like the surrender warning was already given with the whole shootout and you've been arrested thing. And so the instruction is fire whenever you see an armed adult. And one of the lines from the documentary is, well, the Weavers are always armed. Yeah. So a team of 10 FBI agents surround the cabin. Randy, their family friend Kevin, and the daughter Sarah go to check on the body of Sam. And one of the FBI agents shoots Randy Weaver. He is injured. Uh, They try running back to the house and another shot is fired, which kills Vicki Weaver, who is standing um, by the door and injures Kevin Harris, which is the family friend. They don't know that they've hit Vicki at this point, though. No, it comes out about a week later as this standoff eventually lasts 11 days. Mm -hmm. But it is around day eight that a man named Bo Greitz is called in. Bo is someone who Randy Weaver had a lot of respect for, and Bo was able to get relatively close to the house anyway. Close enough to talk to them. Right, yes, and has a discussion. And it is at day eight that he discovers that Vicky is dead and that Kevin Harris is very badly injured. They're able to get them out of the house, though, at that point. Yes, they are able to get them out of the house at that point. But then Bo goes down and shares this news with the marshals who are down at a blockade. And that news, once it is announced really becomes a rallying cry for Mm -hmm. the Aryan nation as they gather at the roadblock and turn it into very much a form of protest. In the documentary, too, they said that it wasn't just the Aryan nation supremacist group that was at this roadblock. It it became kind of a a gathering place for for all of these like-minded people Mm -hmm. um, within these white supremacist and alt-right groups. Um, So there was... Just quite a lot of hatred at this, but yes. on day 11 of this standoff, um, the Weavers surrender to the FBI where they are taken to jail and there is a following trial. Yes. And w- with all of this, like we mentioned, it becomes a bit of a, a rallying cry for the alt-right as they feel the Weaver family 
was attacked by the government for their guns and for their religion. Mm -hmm. And there are chants of baby killers. And it becomes, obviously, uh, a very, very nasty scene. What is a a very, very nasty moment in American history? But Mm -hmm. it it does become a bit of a rally for the alt-right that this is a government that will kill women and children just to come for your guns and to come for your religion. Which... Leads us to the other incident that in many ways inspires um, Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing, and that is Waco. In 1935, a small religious group moves to Waco. They call themselves the Branch Davidians, and they name their sanctuary Mount Carmel. They, for the most part, keep to themselves for a very, very long time, until a man named Vernon Wayne Howell convinced his followers that he had been reborn as Jesus Christ. You may not recognize the name Vernon Wayne Howell, but you might recognize the name David Koresh. He was accepted as having a message from God. Koresh preached the the end of days to his followers and that he would have a role in unlocking the seven seals in Revelations that only the Lamb of God could open these seals. He preached that also he should create a population for this group. And this is something you and I were talking about where it doesn't totally add up that, hey, the world is going to end. But before it does, Mm -hmm. we need to create a population made all out of me. So... All of the men in the group choose to become celibate and give their wives to Koresh, who is accused of sexually abusing women uh, starting at the age of 12. Yeah, we kind of talked about that and how it doesn't really make sense. But also, I would just like to, to throw in here really quick that some of the ideas at Ruby Ridge and definitely at Waco um, with these kind of like this apocalyptic type of messaging. Mm-hmm. It's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Mm-hmm. They're they're saying, oh, well, if you have too many guns and if you, you know, run in these circles, the government's going to come get you. And then these circles are like killing people and robbing trucks. And <laughs> of course, of course, they're being flagged by yeah. government officials. Yes, yeah. It's it's just that, you know, they're going to come for our guns. And it's like, well, yeah, you have too many. Mm-hmm. So in June of 1992, an ATF agent gets a tip from a UPS driver that one of the boxes being sent to Mount Carmel broke open and there was grenades in it. So investigations show that this compound had 2 million rounds of ammunition and fully automatic weapons and that they would basically turned into a military camp. In January 1993, the ATF rents the house across the road from the Mount Carmel compound to do surveillance, and they get an undercover agent in, and Koresh tells this investigator that no one would be able to take him down. He was preaching this Armageddon and now had the weaponry to pull it off. So in February 1993, the FBI receives warrants to get into the compound. February 28th is the day that the raid is planned for, But on the 27th, a story ran about the Waco compound. So local media starts to gather because they think they get a tip that something is going to go down. So as they're gathering, one of the news cameramen gets lost. He asks for directions saying that there is going to be a raid. But this person that he asked for directions is one of the Branch Davidians. He is from the Mount Carmel compound. 
Yikes. Yeah, not great. Uh, when you're trying to do a surprise raid, uh, getting the element of surprise ruined for you is very much not a good thing, yeah. as they would discover. Uh, the agent who is undercover still with the Branch Davidians alerted ATF agents saying, they know you're coming, you should turn back. But there was already 75 agents and they were ready to go. And to let you know what they thought the biggest obstacle was going to be, they, they certainly were armed with, you know, firearms and stuff mm -hmm. but they also all packed chocolate bars because they thought their biggest hindrance was going to be a number of children around that were going to be wondering why there are all these armed people in there because they were going to catch everyone at mount carmel off guard and there was going to be no resistance except for young children and they thought well to keep them occupied occupied we're going to bring in uh, a number of candy bars that was not the case. It seems like, honestly, with what happens, it seems a little laughable. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, we'll just give them candy and they'll come out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in, in hindsight, that very much ends up not being the case. Uh, the man who was actually to serve the warrant never actually made it to the front door because of gunfire. A shootout takes place over about an hour and a half. And the ATF is forced to retreat at the end for ATF agents, which stands for alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, by the way. Yes, so thank you. I didn't know that. It is a, a branch of the, you know, police. Four agents were killed, and there are members inside of Mount Carmel who are also killed and injured. Negotiators take two and a half hours, but they eventually are able to negotiate a ceasefire. At this point, the FBI takes over the negotiation, which is crushing to the ATF as this is something they've been working on for a very long time. There are a number of different theories on this, and there have been a number of reports on how this all went wrong. Both sides, both the Branch Davidians and the ATF say, no, 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 no. The other ones were the ones to, to shoot first. Mm -hmm. In follow-up... I guess, research, it was discovered that the Branch Davidians were very much prepared for something like this as they stocked up with military MRE, which stands for Meals Ready to Eat. So they, they were they were ready to be hunkered down for yeah. a while. So during the standoff, uh, which lasts for quite a few days, um, it is the main goal of the FBI once they take over this investigation and... Yeah, standoff. Um, it's their main goal to get children out first. So they make a deal with Koresh that he will be able to send out radio messages in exchange for children getting released, along with, you know, their parents or some adults. Uh, so every single time one of these radio messages is played children come out of the compound. On day three of this standoff, Koresh makes an agreement that if they show his sermon on TV, he would come out. The FBI agrees, the tape was played, and the FBI is waiting for Koresh to come out, but then he says he received a message from God telling him to wait. Super convenient. Thanks, God. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, the, the FBI was so sure this was the end that they brought buses in to be able to take yeah. everyone back. Um, like that they were they were ready for this to be the end. And then, yes, Koresh gets a message from God telling him to wait. The next message comes a little bit more indirectly as on day six, another child comes out with a note on her jacket. So a little different than a message from God. It says, once the children are out, the adults will die. That was the last time a child came out 
of Mount Carmel. 21 children in total came out, 27 remained in the compound. Koresh said the reason those 27 stayed were, quote, the rest of these children are my children. Yeah, very uncomfortable given the big old fucking yikes very uncomfortable given the ages of the people remaining yeah. in that compound this thing goes on for a while yeah day 13 so a week after the final child comes out of mount carmel authorities are bar uh, bombarding the compound with noise and light at night they send in tanks as a show of force knocking down trees running over cars they are playing music and the sound of like dying animals at night and shining, deprive them yes shining spotlights all the way through it is these tactics that draw a number of onlookers there is media coverage out the wazoo for this thing but also with the government maybe to some not looking in the best of light with, with some of these tactics on a church um once again the guns and religion crowd from the alt-right come including timothy mcveigh who was there selling bumper stickers and having interviews with anti-government journalists and things of that nature. Remember that when we have the episode coming out later this week. Um, Koresh picks a pair of Davidians to talk to FBI representatives. The meeting is viewed as positive, and they said they will meet in a couple of days, but the meeting is canceled abruptly as David Koresh feels it is unnecessary. When we said that this standoff lasts for a long time, we mean it. So we go from day 13 to day 46. FBI negotiators are frustrated at the lack of progress. The FBI lets Koresh speak with his attorney. Uh, and after that, he says that he would write a manuscript uh, about his seven seals and how he is the Lamb of God that will open them or whatever the hell he was saying, mm -hmm. which will be his proof that he really is what he says he is. First, he says it will take two days to write it, then two weeks, then maybe a year. Uh, so on day 49, the FBI is given the green light to use tear gas uh, on the people in the compound. So day 51, April 19th, 1993, the FBI comes in with tanks. They announce that they are bringing tear gas. Um, the FBI is kind of banking that once tear gas is sent in, everyone is uncomfortable and in pain, and this will force the parents to bring their kids to safety. However, just after noon, a wisp of smoke comes from the win window, and within seconds, the place is engulfed in flames. Uh, one of the people who was inside at the time said that most of the compound is just made of wood. So yeah. it, it's basically just kindling. By 1235, the FBI knows there's nothing that they can do. Nine people come out of the compound on this day. Not one of them brings out a child. So just a, an absolutely horrific horrific mm -hmm. scene and this was one of the ones or one of the first scenes that everyone a is following on the news yeah but also this is all it, this is all brought like this all happened live on cnn yeah yeah most of it is broadcast like and especially this final day when the compound goes up in flames it's all just running yes. on tv yeah just live on television yeah yeah the fbi denies starting this fire and Seven of the nine Davidians that come out of the compound that day have accelerants on their clothing. Helicopters with infrared cameras also show that the fires were set from inside the buildings. 
Investigators uncover 78 bodies, including that of Koresh. It was discovered that David Koresh was shot by his right-hand man, and most of the children were executed before dying by, or before the flames engulfed them. The ATF used not another Waco as a mantra, and the FBI would improve their tactics after this. Three memorial stands are at the Branch Davidian compound today, uh, one for the victims of the Oklahoma City bombing, one for the members of the Branch Davidians who died, and one for the four ATF members who die. Once again, this is viewed as a very much the government is, again, targeting your guns, targeting your religion. The government are bullies. They are... They've gone completely out of control with this. And you can see how... Like, from the outside, 78 people dying in a thing where the government had tanks right up against the, the doors of this where place. Where they look like the aggressor. Yes, that does not look good. And there is a theory out there that the FBI were the ones who actually set the flames that day. This is a point of contention uh, even to this day. Like, we, we kind of talked about this before, but it just is very um, mind-boggling to me. There was some... Like, during the standoff, uh, the FBI was able to get some, uh, like, wiretap things into the compound. And they also sent in a, a video camera where a lot of the people and, like, the adults and the children were caught on film. And some of the stuff they say, they just, like, they don't see anything that they're doing is wrong. And perhaps it particularly isn't. Mm -hmm. But you and I kind of talked about this and that if someone is... If you're holed up in a compound with the ready-to-eat meals and tons of guns and ammunition and grenades all around you, and someone's like, hey, I think you might be in a cult, I feel like both of us are rational enough people to be like, am I? Right. You at least get the thought of, okay, am I in a cult, though? Like, yeah. Even, even if your conclusion that you come to, if you're part of something that someone says, I think you might be in a cult, um, even if the con conclusion you come to at the end is, no, I'm not in a cult, you at least have to take a step back, you would think, and go, okay, but am I? You at least thought about it. Mm -hmm. And then with these events, so with Ruby Ridge and with Waco, the way that, you know, now sitting here in 2021, the way that I perceive it is the federal government officials are following up on these threats to national security. But of course, the way that it looks to the people that are the threats to national security is that they're being bullied. Like you said, they're coming for their religion. They're coming for their guns. They're coming, you know, because they're white. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's because, very backwards to me. Yeah. It, it's, you can see, I guess a little bit of how you can come to that conclusion, because if you believe that the government is coming for your guns and religion, they, they literally went to a religious compound because of their guns. Yeah. But the the issue is, A, the sexual assault of 12-year-olds. Yes. B, for sure don't get grenades delivered to your place. Like, that there is... We could have the gun debate. I don't know how many people are saying, you know what, I need to protect my house. Yeah. Grenades. So, <laughs> like, that that's... You can, like, you can twist it to be, well, they went to a religious compound to take their guns. It's like... You can twist in, it to be that, but is that in right? A way, in a way, like that—that that is certainly part of the story. But you are gleefully leaving out 
larger parts of the story. Yeah. It is these two events that Timothy McVeigh cites as reasons for what he would do two years later in Oklahoma City, which will be the focus for our next podcast coming out at the the usual time yeah. on uh, Wednesday morning. But we just thought this was important background information to show what inspired, I guess, Timothy McVeigh and, and how mm-hmm. everything kind of fell into place. And this would kind of make a, a long just one episode. And th- these are pretty impactful moments, I would say, in American history in at least my lifetime. Um, and so... I was a month old. Right. When Waco happened. Yeah. Um, what a world. What and, a world so, did I come into. Like, the, these are things that probably could have their own episode anyway, but because of the tie into what we're talking about this week, we thought a bonus episode would be the, the way to go about this. So, yeah, join us Wednesday. We will have our episode about the Oklahoma City bombing, and we hope that... Uh, you have more context of why it happened now and we will get more into how it happened on Wednesday. So thank you for downloading. Go and do all that good stuff. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, send us an email if you want. Uh, we had no idea podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at we had no idea podcast. And thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye.